Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. boys we are back here together for yet another podcast um and we are not far from christmas um uh, ian are you excited about christmas have you got any special plans and is there anything that you're really hoping to get underneath the tree this year uh maybe a few pbs in 2020 be quite nice Uh, socks are probably a more realistic option yeah probably probably more likely to get socks um but yeah I'm certainly looking forward to Christmas because it always involves some nice long runs, usually in the Lake District because heading there soon after Christmas. So, uh, yeah, I always I, look forward I to it. children and presents. And do you want oh, to- yeah, 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 hey. that's well. Yeah, do that first <laughs> and then a bit of running afterwards. Yeah, no, uh, most of my time at the moment seems to be uh, either on Amazon or trying to collect posts, there, um, posts that I've missed from the post office, standing in queues there. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, are you looking forward to Christmas? Anything special happening at your house? Uh, usual Christmas here with two little ones running around. I'm, I'm a big kid at art as well. I've always enjoyed Christmas. So um, so I actually always tried to factor a week's rest over Christmas week. Um, pre-kids used to be a very active week. I'd always enjoy a traditional run Christmas morning um, and then try to balance out the, the overindulgence with a bit of training. But um, rather than stressing out about fitting sessions in, I, I deliberately get a lot of work done in the next couple of weeks and then I have a week off over Christmas. So um, so under the tree pretty much is whatever kit's left from my MDS wish list that's been <laughs> spread out to all family and friends. If you wouldn't mind chipping in and buy me this, that and that. Um, some some strange requests this year, but uh, hopefully it'll tick all the box off. Yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't got a special guest on this uh, the show today, so we're just going to have a general chat. And the topic of our chat is going to be winter training. So what we thought we would do today is talk about um, what people should be doing through this period, through the winter, based on a, if they've got a summer goal, common mistakes that people make, uh, do's and don'ts in general, the things that we see uh, on a regular basis and the advice that we want to give based on those those incorrect things that we see. So um, I'm going to let you open this one up first, Mike. Um, anything that you've seen recently or anything that's come up on your Twitter feed, your social media, or generally what's been on your mind? Um, the usual stuff seems to pop up, as always. Um, I think when we're talking about winter training, I think the thing that I always seem to, the thread and the, the factors that I always seem to pick up this time of year is just people realizing that it's okay at this point to not be in the best of form it's okay not to be at race weight it's okay to not be setting pbs in training 
Um, you seem to see a lot of people chasing quite hard sessions at this time of year. You get the guys who are going off and trying to set parkrun PBs or they're trying to enter some cross-country league and try and do really well there. And and actually, it's a case of if your season's goals for 2020 involve things that don't really need that stuff now, then don't stress at being a little bit overweight, a little bit unfit, a little bit off form just just enjoy the the training that you're putting in now as a base and and focus on after christmas for the good stuff yeah ian coming to you anything that's been on your mind when you look at everybody's uh, posts on social media and what they're doing over the winter yeah i think uh, one of the key things for me around this time of year is um people are often looking forward to, to next year so often people have had a bit of a um an easier time over the last month or two a bit of recovery but probably still doing some sort of background training. Um, but often I, I want to be looking more back towards the last year and evaluating what I did uh, over the last year, what where my success is, where, where I was less successful, possibly what my real consistent strengths were, consistent weaknesses, and then building my plan for the next year. And also probably what I, I'm most, I was most passionate about. So what, what was motivating me without even trying and what did I really have to make myself do? And then sort of putting all those different factors together to try and come together with what do I want to aim for next year? And then how do I develop those weaknesses? How do I learn from things that maybe didn't go so well last year um, so that I can be you know, trying to address those points next year? Because I think there's often a tendency for people to just fall back into a pattern of doing what they've always done, but then expecting something different to come out of it, um, which is often not a recipe for success. Yeah, <laughs> I think this uh, what you just said about strengths and weaknesses is is definitely true. That I mean, you'll read this so many times that over winter, what you really should be doing is working on your weaknesses. So, do an assessment of your strengths and weaknesses, and work on your weaknesses to be a better athlete. And people will have read that a thousand times over, and it makes really common sense. But at the same time, I'm not sure people really, unless they have that a real in depth understanding. I don't think they can easily analyse their own weaknesses sometimes. I don't think a lot of people know what their own weaknesses and strengths are. And I also don't think they know what the strengths and weaknesses are that are required for certain events as well. So I think you're dead right. They go through the same process of just following the plan that they've always followed out of a certain book or, a, you know, wherever they've got that plan from. And uh, I, I think strengths and weaknesses is something that we, we, we talk about a lot and people get it. It seems an obvious thing to do. But I think potentially it's a thing that's done very badly, very badly. Maybe, um, you know, that might be a good thing to, that we can just talk a little bit about more is how we can assess people's strengths and weaknesses and then how they can act on that to to be a better athlete next year. What's your thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, completely agree. Um, I think you see people, they what they interpret as strengths and weaknesses a lot of the time is actually likes and dislikes. So they look at the things they liked about their sessions and their races and their training or they disliked and not necessarily are they correlated to an actual strength or a weakness. So it's that um, sort of detachment almost to, to analyze that. And that's sometimes where, you know, having a coach can come in brilliantly because the coach can, can assist you doing that. Um, but I often, when I'm working with a lot of athletes, they'll say to me, yeah, so for next season, I really liked these things, but I didn't like those. Can we swap them around? And, 
I often then dig a bit deeper into what you mean you liked or disliked it. And effectively, it comes down to enjoyment or ease or difficulty. Um, but some of those things they disliked might have been a real, real strength for what they did in their session. And most of the time, the weaknesses are, are either a glaringly obvious training error because of something they did, but more often than not, it's a training error of something they didn't do. So it's analysing how we can put those things in for the next year. But that's why I quite like downtime, having that month off at the end of the season to just have nothing else to think about except getting a piece of paper. Um, this is another great reason why training journals and training logs are so good because you can reflect back and compare them to your race data and see what was working and, and going well when the times were going well and conversely when they weren't. Mm. No, I, I agree. I think you mentioned a piece of paper there, and I think the important thing is to write down uh, what you, yeah, and that to be quite logical about the way in which you appraise what happened in the previous year, because I think that forces you to sort of think about some of the things that you might skip over. If so, if you're just thinking about this in your mind, there's a tendency to just focus on those things that you like, not so much the dislikes, and also the strengths, and not so much the weaknesses. Um, I think by actually writing it down, it sort of takes you through a more conscious process. But I think even at that point, there's a there's a strong tendency to miss uh, important factors because I think you almost know at a subconscious level that what you, you're doing this as a point towards what you're going to do next. So it's almost like you know if you write down that that's a weakness, then that means you're going to have to do more of that type of work. Um, so I think one of the other key things to do about this is once you've been through that process is is to get some third party input speak to other people if you've got a coach if or your partner if they're particularly interested in you you know if they've got an interest in your training can give you feedback on that other training partners because they're all people that can give you <coughs> your blind spots and things that you might be missing um, but also i think when people when you look at performances that maybe haven't gone so well you look at them and there's a tendency to, to again, identify or ex explanatory factors that might suit you. So I, I recently read the, um, the Rise of the Ultra Runners. I don't know if anyone's read that, that book. I thought it was an excellent book um, by Adrahanahan Finn. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. But... Um, He's read a few. Uh, he's written a few books uh, around running. Um, excellent writer, but the last chapter is all about UTMB, uh, and his UTMB performance didn't exactly go um, as well as he hoped. Um, but I think there was some key messages in there. In that, it demonstrated that because he got to the point where he's almost going to drop out, uh, and if it hadn't been for an occurrence of his family being at a certain point, and then to friends who then he carried on with i think he probably would have dropped out but that kind of demonstrates that in ultras 99 times out of 100 when people drop out they probably could have carried on because they then did carry on and finish but his explanation for what went wrong was around his downhill running uh and that early on he was held held up and he felt as though holding himself back had destroyed his quads um that seemed quite a strange explanation to me. I mean, it might be right, it might not be. I don't know. I probably haven't got enough information to decide. But that seemed a little bit strange to me. And I was reading that thinking, yeah, I can't think of a situation where I've been held back in my intensity and that has led to me being fatiguing too early. It's usually the other way around. 
And he was actually after that quite aggressive in that he was attacking quite a lot of the downhills. So for me, it, it seemed as though it was probably the latter um, that had been the cause of that. But the implications of that in terms of what you do to try and address that the, the next year are quite different, aren't they? Because if you think it's the fact that you attack the downhills too much, um, then that you're going to change your race strategies. Uh, if you think it's because you got held back, then you're probably even more aggressive early on to try and get ahead of people, which might even compound the issue. So I'm not saying you know, that that was an incorrect um, interpretation. What I'm saying is that the implications of making the right decision are very important in terms of you then making the right decisions about how to change it. Because it could be, you could interpret that, well, actually, I just wasn't prepared enough for the amount of descending. And then that changes things again in terms of what you do in your preparation and your planning. So I think if you can get outside input and other people uh, giving their input on what might have led to um, challenging performances or performances that didn't go as well as you'd hoped, then that's going to mean you've got that triangulation uh, and you're more likely to make the correct interpretation, therefore the correct um, remedy in terms of what you do next year. Yeah. And the, the, the single point I took, took out of what you said there as well is, just to kind of sum this up, is that it's okay doing analysis of your own strengths and weaknesses, but if your perceptions are completely wrong, if you think you're strong or weak at something, and you're not strong or weak at those things, then it's kind of pointless doing it, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and there's a, a, cause a, a couple of things I want to bring up on this. I'm doing this strengths and weaknesses analysis. I'll give you a classic example of this, and I've said this many times, I've mentioned this before, is um, the, as I've got older, people doing Ironman triathlons and, and, and you know, just different distance races, how many times I hear this uh, people say, as I've got older, I'm better at the longer stuff. So that's the perception of it. As I've got older, I'm better at the longer stuff. They're doing a, a, an assessment of the personal strengths and weaknesses, and that's what the outcome is. And what I see is, you now as you've got older, you've got crap at the short stuff. But you're spinning this to think you're better at long stuff. Because you're not very good at short stuff and you can't hit the times you want to hit, you've switched to longer distance races where you're coffee shop riding pace and doing longer, steadier stuff. That's not, you're not doing that because you're better at it. You're doing that because you're, you know, you've got worse at the other distances. So what they're basically doing is they're, they're looking at the things that they're poor at. If we're saying that, based on strengths and weaknesses assessment, you should be focusing on your weaknesses for maximum gains. That's the idea, isn't it? Work out what you're strong at, work out what you're weak at, and if you want to become better, tackle your weaknesses. Then those people should not be going doing, focusing on doing more longer endurance-based Ironman stuff. They should be hit, tackling it head on and doing short stuff, some 5Ks and you know sprint racing to tackle as they're getting older what they're losing, which is their, which is their peak output. So you can spin it how you want, you know, a positive or a negative, can't you? Yeah, because it's almost like the, the saying that, uh, because the way in which you make the interpretation in terms of your, the amount of control you perceive you've got over the factor is very important as well, because that person's saying, I've got better at the longer stuff, as if this, I can't choose this. This is the fact that I'm getting older, so I get better at the longer stuff, so therefore it makes sense for me to continue to focus on the longer stuff because relative to one another, the two, they probably are getting better at the longer stuff 
because the, they're not getting as their performances in the longer stuff aren't decreasing as quickly as the shorter stuff. Yeah. But in objective terms, they might be actually getting worse at both. And I think that's why you need to uh, you got to evaluate each component of your performance in isolation. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. How am I actually doing in terms of my endurance in isolation? How am I doing in shorter stuff yeah. in isolation? But also take control of the fact that you can actually do something about the short stuff. It's not just this fatalistic, I, I'm just better at longer stuff now, I can't do the short stuff, because that means th there's no point focusing on that my training, because there probably is some accuracy in the interpretation, but that's a result of what they're doing, yeah, not yeah. that they can't actually control it. But I see that in triathlon, that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit, where they will... Um, as they're getting older, they're losing top end. And I think to some extent as well as you, I know, I, I, I want to put this out there, as you get older, you perhaps don't want to suffer as much and you don't like that really hard stuff. I don't know what it is. At what point in my life, my perception of this changed, but I remember when I was younger and I'd do, doing a, a, a fell race or a bike race or something. And I can remember getting to the point where you, you, you were beginning a hard climb. And in my mind, when I hit the bottom of that climb, what I was thinking is, I'm going to put the boot in here and see if I can split it on this climb. Now, now I've got to 47. When I get to the bottom of a climb, I always instinctively think, oh, take it steady from the start. Just pace yourself from the start. You know, that's just a complete, I know, is that linked to my fitness or what, a different mindset. But I, I see a lot of people as they start to get older, is that what they do is they, they, they start swerving that really short, high-intensity stuff. And that's actually what they're losing as they're getting older. We know that's what people lose. They then convince themselves that they're better at the longer stuff because, like you said, their performances are dropping off less so in the longer stuff than the short stuff. So they start focusing on the longer stuff and probably avoid doing the high-intensity stuff because they're going to focus on the longer stuff instead. So do more long, easy stuff. And the more long, easy stuff they do, they lose even more top end. So they're even less capable of dealing with the high-intensity stuff which makes them then believe they're even more reasoning to go and do more long stuff. And it just becomes a spiral, a downward spiral, you know? So, uh, uh, Mike, what's your views on that? I know you've just uh, switched to ultras. I'm not pointing the finger or anything. <laughs> this, 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 this feels like a family intervention. I feel like I need a cuddle, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's like someone's been reading my training diary here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm Mike and I'm guilty as charged. Um, but no, I, I, yeah, we, I, you know, I think um, what I would say to that, and I think this is from stuff I've read, but it's also my personal experience. My emotion, my stress cup gets emptied from so many other factors now than when it did 20 years ago. When, when I was pushing really hard sort of 15 to 20 years ago, then I didn't have a lot of stress or other distractions emotionally from, from my training. So exactly like yourself, you could hit the bottom of that climb and just, just go for it. That was one of the main focuses of your day. Now, by the time the training sessions come around, there's so many decisions and so many other stresses in my life that have taken out of that cup that what's left is perhaps not as much in the tank to to go up that hill and and i think what is important to note is that sometimes that that's not a physiological uh decrease or loss although we know that we do lose a little bit as we get older that's more i think we've just got things taking energy away to other places and it can be rechanneled if you're aware of it um and then you have to get smart and clever with how you train and when you train um it's interesting now that i've literally the last couple of weeks been thinking that 
next year I may go down and see if I can get like my 10k time down or a sprint try time down to where it was relatively close 10 years ago mainly because time the, t- the time it takes to train for some of these ultras and the long stuff is is tough um, but actually it was a case of well I don't really know because I'm at the point now I don't really know if 44 year old it'll be next year 44 year old me can do what 34 or 24 year old me did because I'm not trying I'm not trying to I've just slipped into the long stuff and I've not gone back and had a go at it. So the interesting thing for me would be, can I get down to race weight that I was? Can I get down to the training type of sessions I used to do and see if I'm anywhere near it? I don't expect to be beating it or or even matching it that closely. But but yeah, I think a refocus for me would be a good experiment in what we chatted about there. Um, Can't rather or won't rather than can't is probably where we are with some of this stuff. You know, it's interesting that point you're making about getting down to 10K. I honestly think that people who have been competitive throughout their lives, you know, through the 20s and 30s, when they start getting into the 40s, if they are still competitive and still in the game and still trying to be competitive, I think everybody goes through that phase of, can I get my, can I still get down to that 10K time? You know, is it possible for me to work on that, get my 10K time back down to where it was when I was in my early 30s? You know, is that reasonable? And I said before, you know, that we know that physiologically that is the weakness. As you start to get older, what you lose is that top end, that maximal output. What you don't lose or don't lose as quickly is that endurance and that ability to, to keep going, which is why people probably switch towards the longer events. But in reality, what they probably should be doing is looking at this is my physiological weakness. I get more bang for my book doing this stuff, this really hard stuff. So I've got a couple of questions for, for you, Ian. Um, uh, and it's related around this, the, the, the psychology side of it. Um, is there any evidence? So just said, as you get older, physiologically we change. Is there anything that's been done in psychology which has shown that as we get older, our psychology changes, our focus, anything, you know, is there anything related to psychology or is it mainly physiological changes? I don't think this, uh, I'm not aware of any research that's, specifically uh looked at that and tracked that over time um but what i would say is that clearly by just what we're saying in terms of what people tend to focus on in terms of their racing and their goals that they set because of that tends to gravitate towards uh, that the longer stuff so it is affecting your psychology in that it is affecting you in terms of the goals that you're setting but also your perceptions of what you have control over and what you believe you can achieve and what is viable. Um, I think there's a real danger here in terms of a lot of this research being kind of self-fulfilling because of some of the things that Mike alluded to in terms of those lifestyle factors that then influence, you know, the stress levels, other things that are competing for your time, possibly motivational because this is something you've been doing 10, 20 years. So even if there is no change in your physiology due to age, there's going to be a point where you reach your limit in terms of you can't improve anymore. And we'll have all observed people that they're very motivated for two or three years and then things start to platter out and then a lot of people either leave the sport or change their focus for something else. And I think that is a 
fact to him why people move towards longer stuff because you can start setting PBs again and start achieving things that you've never achieved before, which has always been a motivating factor for people when you see people come into a sport, stick around for two or three years and then disappear. Often it's when they no longer see those improvements. But the problem is that when you do research on people that you're identifying that people are dropping off as they get older, but it could be, a, a, I would suggest that the majority of that drop off is down to those lifestyle changes. But we're very influenced by the headlines that come out of that research. And then we start to think, well, I'll naturally get slower as I get older um, uh, in terms of the short distance stuff, but I'll be better at the longer things. So those sort of the research is actually influencing what people are then doing in terms of their training. And then that is then supporting any future research that focuses on that. I think if you could conduct some research where you just looked at the people who continued to maintain the training patterns that they'd always done, you would see that the drop off is much. I mean, I'm very much speaking of this from a sort of personal experience rather than from the research evidence. It's very hard to identify those people because there's probably not many people that have been able to do that. But just personally, for I, I do monitor what I do in terms of training and for 90, 95% of what I do in training, I can still hit the times that I was doing 10, 15 years ago. Um, and last year or this year, but this last training cycle still set some PBs. Um, got very close to my marathon PB, even though I had some real stomach issues in that. So I think that would have been a, a PB, set a PB in the half marathon, got within seconds of 10K and 5K. And in training, I can see that on the track and uh, I, I'm very close to past performances. So I'm not saying that's something that everyone can do. Um, and that would be the case for everyone. But I do think it is very much exaggerated, the drop off, because of the lifestyle changes that lead to um the changes that we see at the population level but i think that is then self-fulfilling in terms of that then influences what people do in their training and what goals they set for themselves and what they think they can actually achieve um so that's the type of research i'd very much like to see done but i don't think it's been done yet yeah and i i, I completely get that because one of my next points the next thing i was going to ask you is what i what i see is like I suppose we're almost socialised, or we have been socialised for many years, just into absolutely believing that as you get older, you will drop off. And at some point, you should pack in sport because you're not going to be competitive anymore. Now, physiologically that might, and psychologically, that might not be the truth. The truth may be that you could still be 40 years of age and go to the Olympics in an endurance event. But I guess if, if you've been told enough times that your performances start to drop off after 30, 35, then you will believe it. And uh, if you don't believe that you can still compete, then you are going to drop off. And then when you start to drop off, you justify it by going, ah, oh, yeah, but yeah. I'm over 35 now. You know, so you, 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 you're kind of led to believe that. But what I see as well over the last five or 10 years, and not just in endurance sports, but even in football and other games like that, people were packing in pro sport when they were hitting 30 years of age. Oh, yeah. 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 And in the last 10 years, I think that's changed dramatically. Yeah. Now, of course, that might be, i come to you in a second, Mike, for this, that might be, of course, that we know more about rehabilitation and injury treatments and all that kind of stuff, and we're keeping them in better nick. Or it may well be that actually people are starting to see other people still being competitive later into the years and thinking, no, no, what I've been told is is wrong. You know, I, I can still do this. Uh, Mike, what's your thoughts on that? 
So rehab and some of our management strategies are definitely improving. I think pro sports are a really good example outside the endurance world for this because the next point I was going to bring in, which ties in perfectly to the question, was that actually were the the injuries and errors that I see a lot of the time in the in the older athletes trying to perform as they did when they were younger is fundamentally because they're trying to train like they did when they're younger, and therefore that leads to the failure to recovery pro- to recover properly. They may pick up injuries or just get fatigued and lose motivation. And if you look at some of the athletes who prolong their careers in other sports, what their fundamental change is their their training, their training habits, how they listen to their body, how they manipulate the training to maximize the performance rather than the training. Um, so I think a lot of the older athletes, if they train slightly smarter sometimes, don't try and do the training sessions you did when you were 20. Do training sessions that factor in your 40-year-old self with those other emotional stresses and time commitments, but also the fact that, yeah, my understanding from the stuff I've done over the years, uh, reading-wise and research-wise, it's the recovery processes that slow down more than the, um, you know, we're all bulletproof in our 20s. You can bounce from session to session to session. I can still do those sessions now, but I can't do them back-to-back on days or back-to-back days. So if they just factor in that recovery and prepare better for the performances, then I think we can still chuck out the performances. Hence, you're seeing professional sportsmen who are prolonging their careers. There's footballers now. There's some, some high high-level footballers who train very little in between games. They, they'll have pretty much just recovery days on spin bikes and pools with, with some therapy work done and it's just easing them back in for the next game and their, their fitness development comes from the next match. Yeah, yeah. Ian, what's your thoughts on that? So, are we starting to change? And I mean, we're seeing, yeah. I think with Tim O'Donnell, who was second at Kona, how old is Tim O'Donnell now? Is he 40 or is he pushing 40? He's certainly pushing it. I think he might be 40, actually. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, I was thinking along very similar lines when you were speaking last, uh, Mark, to, to what Mike just said in terms of, I think we are seeing changes, but I think I would partly explain that. In, uh, I'd agree with what Mike said, but also these population level effects tend to take time to affect, you know, if you're changing these deeply held beliefs in people in terms of what they're capable of at 32, 30, you know, 35, and then shifting that up to 38, 39, 40, people need to see that time and time again and things that are challenging that belief so that gradually that erodes that deeply held belief because like we said earlier that you know if you've been told that enough times it can be something that's a very deeply held belief and they're the ones that tend to take the longest to change so the next generation coming through probably won't have those beliefs as deep uh, set as deeply and uh, when they're hitting those ages they probably won't you know they, they won't be hindered as much and held back so over time, those population level effects, I think we'll, we'll gradually see people pushing the boundaries back, as we've seen. Um, Joe Pave is probably another one of the classic examples in endurance sport in terms of pushing things into performances as well. Um, and with a long career, people often talk about people coming into sport late in endurance sport and then performing well into the 40s. But you know, that's that's a span of five Olympics, I think, and seeing performances at a similar level. Um, but also someone that's very motivated just by running for enjoyment's sake, not for the outcomes that come from it. And I think that's probably, you know, that intrinsic motivation is probably 
very important here as well if you're going to carry on um, training into your 40s um, as hard as you ever have and with setting similar goals then you've got to be getting something from uh, the activity itself and not just for what you gain from it and I think that's what we see with Joe Pervy probably yeah so yeah I think you gradually see this sort of change at the population level is quite slow it takes time for new generations to come in with different beliefs systems and also to chip away at the deeply held beliefs of others yeah yeah and i think this you know the change in standards as well i mean i don't think it's it's the same across the board for all endurance sports but i look at um so with running um i think at the top end there is you know there's still you've got the very high performers in the elite and then you've got the masses who run uh, there's a big boom in that participation but the people in the middle who are the, the high level amateurs so i suppose like you know like we talked about club athletics and maybe the club system not being as strong as it used to be so running clubs can't put out a 12-man relay or a, a good 12-man relay maybe that was a bit lacking but then if you if you look at triathlon if you look at ironman i can't i think it's different in ironman because i think that middle bracket is actually very strong so what i mean by that is i've seen a half an hour, 45 minute shift in the time required to win an age group Ironman if you're in the 40, 45, 50 category. So you know that, and, and uh, uh, interesting on that as well, just this kind of ties in what we've just been talking about, this, that you just socially accept that, well, I, I, I just, I've been told so many times, once I'm past 35, I get slower, is, is where people are setting the bar. So if, by the time people get to 35, if they start packing in a little bit and they're just doing it for a bit of fun, then the times in the 35, 40, 45, 50 categories are not going to be actually that good. So you don't have to be that good to be competitive. And what's happened in triathlon over the last few years, and specifically in Ironman I'm talking about what I've seen recently, is the 45, 50-year age categories, the times are just phenomenal. They've shifted 45 minutes in two or three years. So if you want to now win the 45 to 50 category, you've got to be 45 minutes quicker than if you'd raced two or three years ago. But what's fascinating is everybody goes, all right, okay, is that what we're doing now? We've got to be 45 minutes faster, have we? We all move and we go 45 minutes faster. So the benchmark is critical in people's performance, isn't it? You know, uh, so um, that's, that's a, a definite psychology thing. So Ian, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think uh, often we we set limits on ourselves based on what we're seeing around us, don't we, and, uh, and other people's performances. And suddenly when there's a shift in that, then we start to challenge, we challenge that and we look at how are other people doing that. And when we start to understand that, then we think, well, actually, I can change some of those things. So if it if it's improved technology on the bike or is it improved pacing, is it improved nutrition? You know, what is it that's led to those changes all of a sudden? it changes people's own beliefs uh, and the confidence that they can actually do it. Whereas if you don't see it, so you're always setting those benchmarks probably on certain people around you or uh, like you say, certain qualifying times and so on to, to get to something that you want to do. And if there's a sudden shift in that, um, then all of a sudden we recalibrate what we're doing. Um, and that, so our own confidence has always been influenced by those around us. Um, so that that vicarious influence on our own confidence is something that's always operating. We might not be aware of it, and I think when those we see those changes in performance, then it starts to change our own beliefs about what we can 
we can actually achieve. Um, so we, yeah, we start to recalibrate because of that. Yeah, yeah. Mike, any thoughts on that? Well, it's it's just the modern day four minute mile. We yeah. saw what happened after Barnister did it, and how it tumbled, and how many people just smashed through that barrier. And this is just exactly the same. It's just uh, the best word we used was when Ian said recalibrate. Yeah. People just recalibrate everything, whether themselves or on a larger platform. And, and then, yeah, you just go again at the new level. Yeah, yeah. I do and I see it at the professional level as well. I do think there, that people are recalibrating and they are starting to realise, no, no, I, I, I don't, just because you've told me I'm past 35 and I have to slow down now, this isn't the truth at all. And people are kind of pushing on and resetting those benchmarks completely, you know. But... Um, um, so interesting, going to, uh, something to you, Mike, it's personal to me, of course, as you know, I um, uh, ruptured my hamstring last year. It's been quite interesting for me, this whole strengths and weaknesses thing and assessing where you are, how sometimes it can take something really severe, which stops you in your tracks to recalibrate. So I, as a coach, and you know, we often say, don't we do as I say and not as I do, because you can give advice and then you don't follow it yourself. When I look back over the last couple of years at what I've been doing myself with endurance sports and marathons and triathlons and, and the habits I'd slipped into, the bad habits I'd slipped into, it actually took something for me as huge as a full hamstring rupture and surgery for me to sit back and go, what were you doing over the last two years? And sit and look at all of those errors I made and all those things that the physio will say to me, you know, that stuff that I don't fully understand where they'll say, your glutes are not firing properly and all this. And, you know, all the glutes are not firing. That's what it was. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and all this functional stuff and exercises and the stuff I would, to be honest, I would always put some in biking and running before going doing any gym stuff or strength stuff or anything. And now, of course, it's, I've got to this point where it broke me completely. And I am um, now dead set on. I now have to go to the gym several times a week and doing all these exercises and it's really clear in my head. The clarity is there. It's so obvious what I did wrong for two years and what I need to do, what my weaknesses are for me to enable me to carry on racing at a good level going forwards. That said, within six weeks, I already start to wobble and I fascinate myself with how I think, oh, the boys are going out riding the bikes tomorrow. The lads are going out from the club. Well, I need to go to the gym. Oh, do you know what, though? I'm back running for 30 minutes already. I'm kind of back on it. I might skip the gym tomorrow and I'll go and ride my bike instead. I guess if I was one of your, your clients, Mike, I'm one of these people that you'd just be pulling your hair out with, aren't I? You must see this all the time. I do see it all the time. And I used to pull my hair out and I was heading to look like you two. So I stopped <laughs> um, and I changed, changed how I used to manage these people. And to be honest, that's, that's the fundamental thing. So when we, when we were messaging, saying that we were going to chat winter training, the first thing I wrote down is strength. Um, now, you know, the caveat being that there are outliers who don't need to do some strength work and they'll be fine. And there are people who, uh, that they're just the robust athletes of the world. And then we have the fragile athletes who do all the right stuff and still end up picking up problems. We definitely have over-extrapolated some of the strength research to try and break down the barriers that endurance athletes sometimes have with doing strength training. It's not a panacea and it isn't as strong in some areas as, 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 with, as we think. But fundamentally, how I try to avoid it is simple. Now is the time when our cardio is on the back burner and we're not focused so much on it 
to get the two times a week big heavy strength sessions in for eight to 12 weeks through this period so that when the weather breaks when we're through the new year when the club is and your friends are going out doing bigger rides then you can drop to one strength session a week maintain that intensity doesn't need to be in the gym you can get just as much benefit at home with a couple of simple (laughs) progressive exercises and then I can sit back and go, no, you've done your base, you've done your strength training. Now it is time for cardio and you're in a more robust place to go out and do the cardio. And if you can fit this one little maintenance session in a week, then you should be as good in, a, in as good a position and with as best chance as possible to, to perform well and avoid injury. Um, but everybody will normally start the strength work too late. So I'll see most people start in the strength work Jan Feb time. And then come March, April time when the, the cardio is ramping up, then something has to give. Um, I, I think, you know, the. Uh, I think we see it as a negative. You almost sort of you almost shone that one in a negative light that, you know, it took this rupture and surgery for you to see it. But actually. You've seen it, you've put it in place and this might make the next 10 years of your career, the best 10 years you've ever had. Yeah. And it, and in light in the whole sort of life picture and the timeline of your life, the last six to twelve months, which has been you know almost literally a pain in the ass for you, has has actually been not a big deal if it means that it prolongs your career going forward. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you know the the nice thing with endurance sports, unless you unlucky enough to have a big bike crash or something like that, is that most injuries are nothing serious. They're low level overuse and, and sort of uh, overload stuff and they'll re- resume and recover pretty well but get the strength stuff in now while you're not worried too much about the cardio and then that lays the foundations for the cardio after christmas yeah i think what happened to me is i mean i the, the interesting thing is now with um I, i'm not I'm, I'm being very conscious not to slip as well so you know I, I know what i need to do i have to go and do these i'm doing at least two two-hour sessions in the gym a week now with all the right exercises and 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 because I think we, you know, as runners and triathletes, everybody will know what happens in terms of rehab is that you get injured uh, because you've not been doing what you should have done. And then when you get injured, the physio says you should have done this. So you now need to do X, Y and Z. So you go and do X, Y and Z and it makes you feel better. And you think to yourself, do you know what? I'll carry on doing those. I'll carry on doing those and I don't get injured again. And as soon as you start running, you don't carry on doing them. You know, you carry on running, you start running, you drop all the rehab stuff um, because you're now running again. So you don't really care. And then the next time you get injured, you think, oh, I should have carried on doing those exercises. And then the cycle starts again, you know, because people are just so focused on running this or cycling or whatever is the thing they want to do. And, and I can sense myself slipping already. I could say that I'm only back to running for 30 minutes easy. But you already start thinking, oh, well, maybe I can go out for another 30 minute run tomorrow rather than doing my rehab, you know, because you, you, now I've, I've, I'm, I'm back into running. It's, it's really hard not to not to drop back into those old habits so i'm key i'm gonna i'm gonna stick to it but even in the 30 minutes i'm back running now what's fascinating is by doing this strength for the last three months i've been doing it that 30 minute run whilst i'm not fast and i'm unfit functionally how it feels you know with the knee lift and the stride and everything else and pain wise that 30 minutes is more comfortable and feels better than anything i've ever done in the last two years and I think the reason is that what happened over the last two years is there was such a gr- I had this chronic tendonitis in my hamstrings and weakness in my hamstrings and all sorts of things. But because it happened so gradually over two years, I didn't go from A to B overnight or within the space of a week. 
it happened very, very gradually over two years. So I barely noticed this tiny change that was happening day to day over the space of two years. And of course, it's pretty much the norm because it took two years. That pain and discomfort was just the norm for me. So um, I just found a way to adapt and just kept, you know, just kept running uh, without actually even noticing that anything was wrong. Yeah, I think that so the 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 problem there is that the narrative that a lot of the therapists of the world are giving is slightly misleading and slightly out of touch that rather than saying you need x y and z a lot of them give you x y z a b c d e and f as well and that you have to do them this many times this often and need this equipment what they should have said to you is right mark you've had this surgery and exercises x y and z are going to be really important for the next six to ten weeks but after that x or y or z now and again as long as it's this little much that you do will probably be enough to keep you going and suddenly you've got that different sort of mindset of okay i'm not needing to find two hours to go to the gym i'm not needing to find special equipment to do it in um there are some really simple i know i I probably now although it differs for different people i've got three or four exercises that are my core exercises for most endurance athletes nobody gets more than one maybe two with them but what I do is I kick the ass out of those one or two exercises for the one person doing them. And then I step back and say, right, that's the tools in your toolbox and you use them as and when you need to. But I, you could do them at home or you could do them on the stairs or something, but fit them around everything else. And suddenly I'm hoping to just give them that sort of, it's like taking you, you, your car's dying and you've taken it to the mechanic you spent tons of money getting it fixed he's told you a load of stuff that's wrong you don't even understand which is exactly what we my side of the fence we throw big terms and medical things at people and conditions that people don't really understand it's never really broken down into layman's terms but if we just went okay look if that's what's happened now we fixed it there's these simple little daily things you can do to, you know, check your tires now and again, make sure you got oil in the engine and you should be fine. And it becomes a digestible chunk of things you can do on a regular basis. But likewise, you could have taken the car in before it broke. You could have gone to see someone. People are reactive with therapists instead of being proactive. You know, I'm fine. I'm doing okay. I had a good season last year. Can you give me a quick once over and see if there's anything you think I should do that might help me through the winter for next year? And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing that now with with athletes and just going, you know, yeah, potentially these things might help if you do them this much, but I can't guarantee they will. Off you go and and see how you are. One thing that um, I've seen a lot of these uh, chronic tendinopathies that that creep up over the two years is in people who don't go and get their own coffees and they get coffees delivered to them. So for the the listeners who can't see us on the Skype call, there's only one of us who's had a coffee brought to him in in the last hour. Who answered you that coffee an hour ago? I had to do that myself. Old school. (laughs) Um, uh, Ian, I've got a quick question coming back to you. I'm just curious, with your running background, uh, what... uh, do you have a traditional kind of schedule that you follow? So we talked about people as they get older, physiologically, it's pretty much accepted that they lose that top end, but their endurance wise, they keep to their endurance. Do you tend to focus more on the top end then? So work on that thing, which stereotypically we lose as we get older, or are you more of a mileage man, like a classic, you know, base through the winter and then more intervals later? Uh, 
so this time of year, I don't do a lot of um, high-intensity running work, but I do more of the strength at this time of year, and then I replace that with the high-intensity stuff in the new year as I get into more of the cardio focus. But I do a range of um, high-intensity sessions from sort of mile repeats around about 10K pace um, all the way up to 20, 25-second flat-out sprints up a hill up a steep hill uh, with full recoveries, uh, 12 of those. So, yeah, I still do, I still do this, the full range of sort of intense intensities and keep the high-end stuff in there. And I have set uh, courses that I'll do that on and I know what times I should be doing at certain times of the year and on the track um, so that I can actually see where I am for that time of year. So, obviously, when I start doing that work in the new year, I'm not where I am in March, April. Um, and that's with a focus on a spring marathon. And then I change the, the focus of those intensity sessions then to more the strength, the hill specific strengths for the uh, ultra endurance stuff. So conditioning the legs more and doing that. So that transition starts in May. And then those intense sessions each week. If I'm near Birmingham, then obviously I'm not finding long. Uh, courses that I can get out and do a real um, hiking, but I can do uphill and downhill repeats, um, sharp repeats, and keep the high-intensity stuff in. We've got a 13-storey building um, on campus, so I'll, do, I'll use that for climbing uh, and descending training, but I'll do a lot more um, real hiking and uh, work in my endurance stuff, so that changes as well in terms of my long run. So those the, the sort of the high-intensity aspects of my training are always there but in the winter it's more strength work in the gym then it becomes more of a focus on the speed work for the for the road and the uh, and the marathon training in the spring and then that becomes more of the sort of specific stuff for the for the real uh, ascending and descending that's required in the ultra stuff yeah uh, the conditioning of the legs so the nature of it just changes the different times of the year yeah yeah comes more specific as you go on kind of thing but because yeah. it that's interesting itself that whole periodization of training how that's changed again over the last five or ten years when i was younger there was only one way to approach an endurance event and you know the old boys at the cycling club would say well in winter you do nothing or you just do slow stuff and then as you come into spring you pick the intensity up and get a bit faster and then when you get into summer then you pick the intensity up even more and get faster. So you had a classic pyramid, didn't you, which was a wide base. And then as the season went on, it got to a sharper peak. Um, and then what's happened now is over the last 10 years, even like with Team Sky and British Cycling and, and lots of uh, age group triathletes, they now favour this opposite model, you know, reverse pyramid or reverse periodization or whatever names they give it, which is they'll do more shorter high intensity stuff in the winter. And then as the season progresses, they'll actually start doing more longer stuff or more importantly more specific stuff rather than just being longer it will go more specific so go from from, from fast and short to to longer and specific so flip the pyramid uh, upside down and I, I get that because i've had this conversation quite a few times with people and that whole traditional pyramid came you know the, the and we, we used it in cycling in swimming in running and it originated with arthur lidyard from the 1950s and it was he was a guy who invented the long slow distance and the hundred mile weeks and all that kind of stuff, and um, and he always had some elements of speed in there as well, 
But um, we kind of adopted that and everybody used that and, and still uses it today to a large extent for a lot of endurance sports. Um, but one of the things I always say is when you look back at Arthur Lidyard, the athletes he were working with were all elite middle distance runners. So when you've got someone who can run under two minutes for 800 metres, they've got that natural speed, that natural power. What Arthur Lidyard did was add aerobic base and endurance to them. He added mileage. The general athletes that I work with, none of them can get anywhere near two minutes for 800 metres. So you're taking people who they, they just don't have that power. They don't have that speed. They can't run anywhere near that fast. And then in winter, they feel that they've got to go and do lots and lots of slow stuff, which actually doesn't change their fundamental problem, which is they're not fast enough. They're not powerful enough. So when Wiggins trained for the Tour de France, you've got the fastest pursuit rider in the world. So it can generate a huge amount of power for a short amount of time. Then a classic base model would work for him. So add the mileage, add the aerobic base and the condition and the resilience. And he's going to do well in the Tour de France. He took the fastest rider in the world just to make them last longer now. But unless you're that, unless you're fast in the first place, it doesn't work. And we get that a lot with our right with the triathletes that we coach is when they come to us, we do an assessment with them. So we get them on the walk bike, we do VO2 and all of that kind of stuff. And 95% of them, the problem is not their endurance. They could go out, and as long as they rode slowly, they could go out and ride 100 miles that day. You know, they could get round an Ironman. The bottom line is that they're all that their base speed and their base power is way too low. And someone's told them that because they're training for Ironman or Ultra, they have to go and do lots of distance. And all it's done is just made them run even slower for even longer. Um, and it's because they're following that classic model. It was never designed for them. It wasn't designed for this population. Lidyard's model worked for elite to middle distance runners, you know, not for your average age grouper. Mike, is this ringing any bells? It is indeed, yeah. That's stuff I've, I've, you know, when I first started studying sports science, that was the model, wasn't it? LSD, yeah. he was thrown at you. That was what we all we all got pushed at. Um, and I think, yeah, I see a more, I see a raising awareness in different approaches, which is which is good. Um, but the approaches on the the mass approach to the event is the problem still. People are still thinking you train a certain way for a certain event rather than the person doing that event and their background and their their history with stuff. And again, if you're seeing people swapping in, you, Ironman is, is, is a great example. There's such a diverse background of endurance athletes going into it that they can't be they cannot be trained the same way to get the same things out of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head there. People thinking there is a way to train for an event rather than training the individual for that event. And people thinking that that classic thing, I have to go long because it's a marathon, because it's an ultra, because it's an Ironman, I have to go long. And actually that's for a lot of what we assess them. And going back to the point made earlier about assessing strengths and weaknesses, that when you assess people and you tell them what the weaknesses are, it's the it's the first time you would have ever considered that. So I do think there is an issue with saying to people, you need to assess your strengths and weaknesses. I'm not sure a lot of people know how to, because when they'll come in here and do a, a VO2 test or test them on the watt bike, and you go, look, the issue with you is you just can't produce enough. Your maximal power is that what you really need to go and do is really short, high-intensity intervals. It blows the mind a little bit, and they can't get the head around it. So on their own, they would have never come to that come to that conclusion. You know, we've had people come in here. I can remember a, a great example. It's a good psychology one for you this year. We had a guy came in training for Ironman and we tested him 
And I said, look, your maximal aerobic output, your power to weight is, is very, very low. You can ride slow based on the results for a long, long period of time, but you'll never get any faster. So what you need to do on the winter is, uh, is work on very, you know, your maximal output, short high intensity intervals. What was interesting is he'd done Ironman because he didn't want to do those. What he wanted to do is just ride to the coffee shop at coffee shop pace. So when predict, pre but when you're presenting someone with the data, it boxes them into a corner a little bit. And I think he was almost like, it was like he was threatened. And he said, well, I know because I'm training for Ironman. So I need to do longer, slower stuff. And I said, well, no, because there's the data and the data is telling you what you need to do. And I, I could see him looking at and his mind spinning as he's reading the data thinking, how am I going to get out of this one? I've been boxed in a corner. And he, in, inevitably, interestingly, that week, he, um, he dropped off the coaching plan and signed up for another coach who, I quote, would give him a more bespoke plan. So basically, he'd gone to someone else and said, will you let me go and ride to the coffee shop at a slow pace? Because that's actually what I want to do. Yeah. I want you to tell me it's okay to do that. And the guy said, yeah, why not? For 120 quid a month, I'll do that. Yeah. That's actually what happened. Yeah. And again, that's not strengths or weaknesses. That's likes or dislikes. Yeah, yeah no, I think, that's, him, that's him choosing what he wants to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it goes full circle. to uh, It's a perfect example of what we said early on in that uh, if you truly want to get better, then you've got to do an effective evaluation of where you've been uh, in the past so that you can identify what you need to do in the future. And we're not always the best people to do that. And we need to get the opinions of others. And if we're not fully open to, to those opinions or prepared to do those things, and that's why I said, you know, what what when I was uh, talking about looking back at the last year, I said about looking at what you found the easiest to do in terms of motivation. What were you naturally enjoying doing? Because often the things that we find we don't like so much often coincide with where our weaknesses are and what we need to do. And then we need to be honest with ourselves whether that's really something that we're prepared to do. Um, and obviously the best athletes are the ones who have been prepared to go and do those things that they haven't been able to do. But quite often what you find when people do that is they then do eventually start to find that motivating and enjoying in and of itself and can be intrinsically motivating because you then become better at it. And it's something that you, you feel competent at. Um, whereas often because it's a weakness, we're feeling competent and we, we don't enjoy it because of the, for that reason. Um, I think one of the best examples often is you know, one that I'll commonly see is around marathons. Um, and whenever people, because as we're saying, people are not always good at evaluating their own performances and what led to them. 99 times out of 100, if someone drops off at 20 miles or 18 miles in a marathon and slows down is either I need to do more long runs or I need to do longer long runs. Not I set off too fast. At the moment, I, that is a pace that I was running at that I'm not capable of. They haven't equated it to what they're doing at 10K, what they're doing at 5K, and whether that was a viable goal or whether they paced that effectively. Um, and when you actually get people to pace performances better, sometimes they'll see that that allows them to perform better. But actually, when you get a marathon just right, it becomes very, very unpleasant in those last miles because mm -hmm. you're hanging on to a performance that is extremely painful and uncomfortable but you can keep that going i've seen people that you demonstrate that to them and that's then they go back to going off too quickly because you go off too quickly and that means that at some point you can just let go and start run walking it in 
So yeah. again, it comes back to that thing: is do you really are you really prepared to go where you need to go to get the performances that you say you want to get? And some people are, and other people aren't. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's not, you know, for you. But yeah, I think you need to be honest with yourself at that point before you set yourself up for potential disappointment if you're trying to uh, work towards something that is not for you. I think you're dead right. I think that's it. You know, we can, when you assess someone, so we physiologically assess them, we can say, this is what you need to do. But you've got to be prepared to go and do it because it is generally the stuff that they don't want to do. You know, and they were kind of hoping that the strength and weakness assessment will give them some kind of quick fix or an easy option or there's something I've missed, something else I can do that will make me faster without having to go and do that. Some silver bullet I can find here, but actually it's just that hard stuff that they don't enjoy doing is generally the stuff that's most important. Yeah, yeah so I, I know we've been talking like the most of the last hour about, um, well, I've been talking about getting older and getting slower. This is like a podcast personally about me, unfortunately. But uh, what I'm noticing is uh, people, as they get older, the, the, you know, we've said this a few times already, what they're losing is this, this peak power. They lose this top-end power. And what's, um, what we have to explain to people is when they come in here, for a, if they're doing, let's say, for a bike test, for example, they jump on the watt bike and we do a ramp test and every minute we increase the wattage and the final full minute that they complete, um, we take that as their maximal aerobic power. And then I have to explain to people and say, right, if you're riding an Ironman, you will probably ride at somewhere around 60 to 65% of what you achieved in that maximal aerobic power, okay? And that rule applies to everybody. So it's this law of relative percentages, if you like, because I think people sometimes think that the guys ahead of them are ahead of them because they're riding harder. So that guy's riding at 90% of his maximum, and I'm only riding at 60% of my maximum, so therefore he's ahead of me. But actually, in an Ironman, most people from the age groupers through to most of the pros, maybe the pros riding a bit harder, but most people are riding at 60 to 65% of their maximal aerobic power based on a one-minute ramp test, okay? So if on the ramp test you reach 500 watts, then you're riding at 60 to 65% of 500 watts. If you only reach 250 watts, you're riding at 60 to 65% of 250 watts. So the maximum figure that you achieve, in effect, will, will dictate your Ironman speed. 60 to 65% of 500 is a big figure. 60 to 65% of 250 is not a big figure. And trying to get that across, that the maximal aerobic power is key. If you can't go fast for five miles, you can't expect to go fast for 112 miles. And what was interesting is... Um, Alex Hutchinson posted something on Twitter and it was an article and I think he'd entitled it the speed reserve and it was exactly this point so we can take that model across to running so if you want to be able to run um uh, uh, three hours for a marathon go into three hours you've got to be seven minute miling is that right seven minute miling just over yeah, three hours in it yeah, yeah. yeah so just under seven minute miling okay so if you want to be able to run seven minute miles and you probably need to be able to six minute miles in the 10k and if you want a six-minute mile for a 10K, you probably need to be able to run 540 miles in a 5K and so on. And you can work it right down. If you can't run 5K in this time, you're not going to run 10K in that time. And if you can't run 10K in that time, you can't run a half marathon in that time, and you can't run a marathon in that time. There is a basic requirement. And what they did is they were looking at Kipchoge as an example. 
and they were looking at these elite runners. And it was basically just saying the same thing. They were looking at how quick he was over 200 meters and saying, you know, you have to be able to run 200 meters in just over 20 seconds if you want to be able to run four minutes 40 per mile for a full marathon. You know, if you're not fast enough right from the start, if you can't run fast in simple terms, you have no hope of getting around a marathon in a fast time if you can't do it even for 100 metres. So this, are you, from a, from a start point, are you a quick runner? Can you produce a high amount of power on the bike? That's your start point, if you like, before you go away and add the endurance. And I say that Lidyard model worked because he took people who, from a start point, were elite runners, they were fast. Or people who could produce a high amount of power on the bike, it works for those. But the current population, I think, can't run fast they can't produce a high, high amount of power on the bike but yet they're going straight into training programs where they are trying to learn how to sustain it for longer periods of time when they never actually had it in the first place if that makes sense yeah absolutely does and, and that is that is so true when they do it properly with someone like yourself and get tested yeah but a lot of these people are using hypothetical submax models from magazines or generic training programs and trying to predict these values that are way off anyway. Um, and therefore, it's even more skewed. But yeah, the again, it's it's a societal uh, psychology of endurance sports yeah. that it's low level, it's endurance, it's anaerobic, you don't need power, you don't need strength, you don't need high intensity stuff. And um, yeah, I read the same article actually, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah, and it is it is true. And I think hopefully we can through the podcast, but but ourselves and collectively just getting that message out that you know power and maximum output is so vital, even in the big stuff, because because effectively it predicts and plans the whole of your program. Yeah, yeah. And again, you see some people, and I I see this a lot that they'll start their training block for a 20-week Ironman program with, with a, te a ramp test. They never redo the ramp test to see if the training program needs to be modified. Mm. Um, and if it's working, obviously, you need to retest to, to reevaluate and re recalibrate those those parameters later on. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think I'm a big advocate of it. I'm a big fan of trying to get people power, get their power up. Yeah. Uh, have you seen, have you come across... Um, Canova training, Renato Canova. Oh yeah, it? yeah, that's very. Yeah. That's pretty much the same, similar model, is it? Lots yeah. of high yeah. stuff. You know, you, you, you start you you start out at your race pace and you add the mileage to it at that race pace, effectively. Yeah. Um, but again, if you haven't put yourself in a physiological position to be able to produce that power and pace, mm -hmm. then effectively it's like trying to start driving from. Um, we're going to Cardiff in first gear and open the car never blows up. Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, I suppose, like, again, for I suppose layman's terms, if we are, let's look at Kipchoge's 159 and going under two hours for the marathon. I forget, is it around 440 mile in that? Four minutes, yeah. 40 a mile was he running? Yeah, okay, so, so as if you've got an average Joe running a marathon, we all know that when you run a marathon, you can't run at 100% in a marathon. You have to be running at a steady pace because it's 26 miles. And whether you're an elite runner or a novice runner, you can't run eyeballs out for 26 miles. So it has to be a steady but hard pace, something you think you can sustain for 26 miles. So 
Kipchoge's steady hard pace is four minutes 40 per mile. And for 4.40 to be steady hard for him, then you ask the question is, so what if he just ran one mile eyeballs out? So he must be close to four minutes. You know, it's probably not far off breaking four minutes for a single mile. So unless you can get close to breaking four minutes for a single mile, 4.40 will never, ever be comfortable. <laughs> you know, so there has to be that basic speed. And if you look at an Ironman race, if you want to cycle at 18, 19 miles an hour for a full Ironman distance, if you can't ride at 25 miles an hour just for five minutes, then 18, 19 miles an hour for a full Ironman is never, ever going to be feasible. So in simple terms, what you could do is spend your winter, just your whole winter could be geared towards how fast can I, what do I have to do to make my one mile run time as fast as possible? What do I have to do to make my five minute power output on the bike be as high as possible. So you're working on very small distances, very short times, but maximizing them, being the fastest runner you can over one mile, be able to produce as much power as you possibly can over five minutes. That very basic start point, that first fundamental block, become fast, become powerful, and then as the season progresses, start adding the endurance. But as endurance athletes, that is a massive, massive leap of faith to do when you're used to going out and doing loads of miles on the run of the bike. So that's probably more, even if you could, you know, and aside from the potential injury risks and all that kind of stuff, just psychologically for a lot of endurance people, it would just be a step too far to, to you know, to move back to that base start point. Yeah. Um, and when I mentioned earlier, we were on about strength training for injury prevention, then that's where the evidence base is lacking. We can't categorically say it's going to help injury uh, reduction. What we categorically can say, and we've got 30 years of, of research, is that whatever parameter of endurance sports you're trying to target, then strength training can improve performance. Whether it's, in, whether it's through speed, you know, TT times coming down, um, lactic and anaerobic threshold going up, energy efficiency and um, uh, eco eco economy movement improving, there's limitless evidence right now to say that we fundamentally would get better with strength work. Yeah. And it's a, damn, it's a damn side easier to get in the gym and get strong than try to improve your max output by just hammering yourself on bikes and running as uh, at max efforts. Yeah. So, um, so if they needed another reason to, to get in the gym this winter, yeah. that, it, that should be it. But I mean, the, the thing is with strength training though as well, because strength training falls into so many different categories, doesn't it? So I just like to give you some examples of where, like, where I think strength training fits in for our triathletes that we coach is that when we bike test people, so the, the difference between biking and running is that if we're doing a biking test, every minute we're increasing the resistance. So we're making it harder to turn the pedals every minute. And it, it's almost like doing a leg press exercise and every minute we drop an extra weight on and it's getting harder and harder and harder to turn the pedals. If you put someone on a treadmill and every minute increase the speed, there's not an increase in resistance. You've just got to move your legs faster. You know, so it's not harder to move your legs. You've just got to do it quicker. So there is, a, there is a basic strength element involved in cycling that you don't get in running. And you'll see that if you watch the, you know, the, the world's top cyclists and look at the world's top marathon runners, there is an obvious difference in the size of the legs of the cyclists compared to the runners. There is an obvious physical difference. And we get a lot of people will come in and they'll start testing and we get to quite low wattages. And by low wattages, I'm talking between 200 and 250 watts. And they will fail on the test and they'll stop. And they're not out of breath. And they'll say, 
I feel all right. It's just my legs. I can't just, I haven't got the strength in my legs. So they just don't even have that basic strength because they spent all the time riding in the small chain ring or a compact chain set or a triple chain set, spinning 90 to 100 RPM because someone's told them that high cadence is better. And they have zero strength in their legs. And if they think they're going to be able to put it into a big chain ring and power that bike along on a flat time trial course, they can't. They're not strong enough. So you can either do some strength work on the bike and you can big gear work or whatever else. But, but before you even get to that, the basic thing is just go back into the gym and just lift something and get some basic strength in your legs. Because if you get to 200 watts and, you, and, and the resistance is so much that you have to stop pedaling, then your aerobic endurance is probably not the issue. You just can't put it in the big chain ring because your legs are just not strong enough. But then on the running side of it, I see that maybe more the, you know, the whole um, strength side in terms of the core thing and the control and the glutes and all of that functional stuff. And then, of course, running is very plyometric as well, isn't it, when you hit the ground and bounce. So I can imagine plyometric routines are far more beneficial to runners to some extent. And I know plyometrics... There's lots of research been done on plyometrics, hasn't there, which has shown that it improves running economy. Whereas cycling, there isn't, there's less plyometric involvement. It's just brute pushing down on the pedals. So good runners bounce, I guess. That's what I'm saying. They hit the ground and they bounce off the ground. You don't have that in cycling. So when you talk to people about strength training, sometimes it's difficult for them to comprehend it because are we talking core stability and glute strength? Are we talking brute force, lifting stuff to make my legs stronger? Are we talking plyometrics? So I'm bouncing when I'm running. It, it covers quite a wide area, doesn't it? it? It does. But at the end of the day, muscles can't think. Muscles just act. So um, if you are, if someone is listening and they're struggling with what they should do, then the fundamental basics is just to get strong per se. Yeah. Um, and that can be achieved from just at home or in the gym, lifting progressively heavier weights and trying to lower the reps as much as they can. The, 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 um, the saddest thing that I see is is uh, the ones who do dedicate the time to doing it, but the parameters of the strength training are just off. So they're doing the right stuff and they're giving their time commitment to it, but they're still stuck in this, you know, sets 20 to 25 with very light weights because it's it's muscular endurance and I'm an endurance athlete. Mm. But trying to, you know, anyone who is doing anything out there, trying to switch so that we're getting to five to eight reps five to six sets, a couple of minutes in between. Um, the nuances of whether you need to add in some plyometric stuff after that can be can be discussed greater with any coaches at the time. Um, but just do something and get a bit stronger. Um, this whole platform of stability type stuff. And fundamentally, if I am trying to fire a cannon off a canoe, mm -hmm. then I've got less chance of that being an effective shot than if I fire it off a barge. Mm -hmm. So do you need to throw some sort of general stability and and sort of uh, functional core work in? Probably, probably if you can, if you can give yourself a better platform to produce power on, then, then those muscles that are then better to produce power on should be complemented even better. You know, we've all we've all gone for runs where we're feeling quite strong and it's a muddy, boggy trail run or a sandy sort of beach run. And you've got that lateral component and you just slip in sideways and it just feels like you're going nowhere forward. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, the next day, it's those little lateral glute muscles. And as you say, some of those core muscles that are just, wow, that's that's really blowing. I, I thought I was strong, but actually that's been quite hard. And it is just a case of adding some of that stuff. But again, there's some work that's gone on to show that even cyclists, if you can have that 
control in that position on the bike, then you allow your legs to produce even more power. Or, and this is where I'm I'm a big fan of it, produce the same power but more efficiently. Yeah. So I'm I, I, either way, it's you know, is lots of ways to skin that cat, but effectively it's more power for longer and getting yeah. less tired. Yeah. And I get, to be honest, Mike, I feel what you're just saying there as well with the, with the strength stuff and going lifting heavy, that's kind of where I am with, you know, with my cycling. And, and again, I keep banging about as you get older, you lose that. But I think I've always more been a slow twitch person. So in Ironman, my strength when I do an Ironman is I don't slow down as much as others. My weakness is I'm not as fast as them. So I could never go at their pace, but I hope that they slow down more than me towards the end. So the obvious thing for me to do is to try and increase my pace. And the way to do that is as I don't drop off much, I've got to be producing more power. So if I do like a simple bike test, like how much power can I produce for 20 minutes? Comparably, it's just not high enough. But when I do a test for five minutes or even one minute, that's not high enough. So if I can't produce the power for one minute or five minutes, then I'm not going to be able to do it for 20 minutes. It's the Kipchoge. If you can't run a mile in four minutes, you can't expect to be running steady at 440 pace. So because I can't produce the power for uh, high enough power even for five minutes, I'm even for one minute I'm struggling and I'm working really hard on just 30 seconds and one minute and that's not high enough and it's plateauing. So I'm having to take even a step back from that, which is going back to the gym and what's the heaviest weight I can lift for five to eight repetitions. So just try and increase my weights that I'm lifting on the leg press or whatever it is to then see if it will make me better on the bike for 30 seconds of power, which will make me better for one minute, 20 minutes and so on. It's just going right back to the start. You know what? And I guess that is the very start, isn't it? You know, if you, if you go from riding a bike from five and a half hours and you bring it right back to the start, it's what you can lift or what you can push just for a handful of seconds. Yes. And we, uh, and we, and we chatted at the start of the podcast about um, the strengths and weakness analysis. Yeah. And, and, and we can work out in that analysis the, the what, what you couldn't do and what you could do through that season. But the why is the, is the real secret. Because exactly. if, you, if, you, if you're saying, well, yeah, I, need, I just couldn't keep the cycling wattage going. And then my default, and this is what a lot of the athletes do, is, okay, so I either need a better bike, mm-hmm. better components on my bike, or um, I need to cycle more. Yeah. And actually, no, perhaps it's just the, the operator of that machine that needs to be better. And then that's, so, so the other thing I'm, I'm always conscious of my athletes is if I've programmed something in, I need them to understand why I've programmed it in yeah. by translating it to, to race day. So yeah. I, I think we need to get you more powerful on the, uh, on the bike, be able to maintain a higher wattage for longer. The way to do that now is to get you in the gym and get you strong. So yeah. it's not that I'm just getting you to do stuff and I know you're not a big fan of it and, and I just want you to do it. It's a case of this is why I'm doing it because of that. And we'll we'll drop to a maintenance program as soon as we can. But by that point, you're going to be on the bike producing more power, producing higher watts for longer. And then we'll change the sessions to accommodate those. Yeah. Um, but a lot, a lot of people aren't explained this stuff. It's just not yeah. translated well enough. Yeah. We, I mean, we even on the on the bikes with the testing, we were testing people doing a maximal aerobic test where they increase. You know, we add twenty watts every minute, and the test goes on for ten minutes or so, and then they reach failure. But then we do a sprint where it, what's the peak figure you can hit within ten seconds? So they go absolutely eyeballs out. Generally, spike after two seconds, and then it deteriorates. By the time we got to eight seconds, it's it's tailing off. 
And there's really good correlation between what they can hit on a maximal sprint just for a handful of seconds and what they can do on an aerobic test. And the bottom line is because if they don't have that basic strength in the legs to sprint for even a couple of seconds, by the time they get to 200 watts on the aerobic test, they're just finding it too hard on the legs. They're just not strong enough. And there's really good correlation between it. But uh, yeah, but like you say, it's just, that, I guess that's the downside. It's, it's, it's great to say people should be assessing strengths and weaknesses, but it's whether you really understand. They can have it explained to you what your strengths and weaknesses are. But great. It has been uh, great chatting as always. Um, Ian has already left the conversation to go to his Christmas party or wherever he's going. So, uh, um, yeah, great chatting with you again, Mike. And uh, okay. have, you, have you got any more, anything else for the rest of the day, any training or work, or is that you done? No, I am. I'm actually heading out on a little run now. I was I was saying to Ian earlier that um, for my MDS program, I've been trying to fit in a lot of things around a busy schedule. So I've done a number of two to three hour runs at 10, 11 p.m. at night. This week, the week's panned out that for the first time in my old program so far, I've got a traditional big weekend. Yeah. So I've got I've got a heavy mileage weekend Saturday and Sunday. So I'm just going to go out for a nice, easy little 45 minute one now and just accrue some easy miles. Good, good. Super. Well, enjoy the rest of the sunshine. It's not going to yes. last very long. Uh, have, a, have a great weekend and I look forward to catching up with you next weekend. Yeah. Take care. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the endurance coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>